Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and to make stars. They will allow him to be in his almnery to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the everlasting, ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love. They love him anywhere better than they do when he sits upon his throne with his scepter in hand and his crown upon his head. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is upon his throne whom we trust. This is what Charles Spurgeon preached on May 4th, 1856 at the New Park Street Chapel in London. He goes on in this sermon to defend the right of God to do whatever he chooses to do with everything that belongs to him. And of course, everything belongs to him, including you, including me, including every person who has ever lived, anyone and everyone that you know. We are creatures, creatures that God has created by himself for himself, and therefore he has every right to do whatever he wants to do with us. Now, this is a fundamental truth that's revealed in Scripture, and it's vitally important for us to remember and to believe if we want to understand the nature of God's grace. Almost all Christians would acknowledge that God saves by grace, that salvation comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But many who affirm this do not appreciate as they ought the nature of that grace that saves. And so many modern Christians, and that is over the last two to three hundred years, have tried to help describe the nature of that grace by referring to saving grace as sovereign grace. The point of putting it like this is to emphasize that God's grace is not coerced. It's not a payment. It's not something that he does in response to anything in the create creature, but rather it is that which he gives freely, without compulsion, without any regard to anything that the person deserves or has done. The salvation that Christians have in Jesus Christ is from first to last a work of God's grace. And that's why all praise belongs to God, both now and will continue to belong to him forever. Romans 9 is perhaps the best chapter in all the Bible to state both succinctly and very expressly the doctrine of God's sovereign grace. In this chapter, we see the Apostle Paul arguing to remind us, to assure us that our salvation is secure in Christ because God is sovereign in grace. We return to our study of Romans 9 this morning by picking up where we left off last time, which is in verse 14. 
So our text is Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you'll see this on page 949, or 945, 945. Our text will be verses 14 through 18, but I'll begin reading in verse 6. So follow along as I begin reading from Romans chapter 9, verse 6, all the way down through verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then our text beginning in verse 14. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Is God unjust? Perish the thought. That's the point the Apostle Paul wants to make in this paragraph that we're going to look at this morning. He's continuing to build an argument that he really began in chapter 8 when he describes the incredible salvation that we have because of Jesus. He talks about true Christians, those who are in Christ, those who are walking in the power of God's Spirit. And such people are eternally secure. They're secure in God's love. The last few verses of chapter 8 erupt in a crescendo of wonder and assurance, as Paul puts it like this in Romans eight thirty-eight. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And after expressing his sincere desire for the salvation of the Jews in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, Paul begins to refine his argument to show that despite the fact that many Jews in his day have rejected God's salvation in Christ, God's word has not failed. His promise didn't skip a beat. He states that plainly in verse 6 of chapter 9, that the word of God has not failed. And that statement becomes the thesis for the rest of chapter 9, as well as chapters 10 and 11. This morning, what I want us to do is to look at verses 14 through 18 by noticing first what we learn from the objection that the Apostle Paul anticipates and states. And then secondly, to consider the proof that he offers 
to defend God's justice. The objection is in verse 14. The proof is in verses 15 through 18. So first look at verse 14. What does this question and answer here teach us? The question is, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, this is an objection that the Apostle Paul anticipates will come from his readers based on what he's just said in verses 10 through 13 about God's dealings with Jacob and Esau. I mean, here you have these boys that were born of same parents. They were twins together in the womb of their mother. God chose Jacob and he did not choose Esau. And he did that before either one of them were born. Look at verse 15. It says, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's not verse 15, is it? All right, well, you know which verse it is, so you find it. God sovereignly made a distinction between Jacob and Esau, and he did it before they were born. Paul here is arguing that God's grace is eternal. That God's love for his people is eternal. As he says in verse 13, by quoting Malachi, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, let's just be honest. When you hear that, that doesn't sound fair, does it? That doesn't sound just. I mean, that sounds arbitrary. We might argue that it sounds capricious. It seems random. Paul recognizes how this truth typically lands on thoughtful people. And so he anticipates the objection to his teaching of God's unconditional election. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's a real question. It's not a rhetorical question. He's not making a point. Many people think that if you accept what the Bible teaches about God's sovereign grace in election, then the only conclusion you can come to is that God simply isn't fair. That God isn't just. But as reasonable as that might seem, Paul minces no words in rejecting this conclusion. We see this in the answer that he gives. He raises the objection, and then he very directly answers it. By no means. By no means. Paul here uses two words that translate to us by no means, and he uses that two-word phrase 14 times in his letters. We've already seen it in chapter 6 when he raises another consideration that would come from those that are following his teaching but misunderstanding the implications, by no means, no way. It's a strong objection to the idea that has just been written. He's saying, never, certainly not, perish the thought, God forbid. This is unthinkable. On the one hand, such an objection is understandable because for God to choose Jacob and not Esau or to choose one person and not another person does seem unfair. It seems unrighteous. If we forget that fundamental truth that I mentioned earlier, the truth that God is absolutely sovereign in his world 
And he can do what he determines he wants to do with that which belongs to him. If you don't have that truth operating in your mind, then the accusation makes perfect sense. But on the other hand, when we remember, as Paul does here, that we are God's creatures, that he did create us by himself, for himself, then we will have to conclude that he has every right to do whatever he chooses to do with us. He is not obligated to show us grace. Furthermore, God himself is the just one. He himself is the source of righteousness. He's perfectly righteous. Scripture just asserts this as a truth dozens of times in both Old and New Testaments. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, the song of Moses before he goes up to the mountain to die, he sings of God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Is there injustice with God? Perish the thought, as Moses would sing. Psalm 97, verse 2, the psalmist says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 119, verse 142, the psalmist sings, Your righteousness is righteous forever. Your law is true. Psalm 145, verse 17, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Jeremiah, chapter 12, verse 1, the prophet says to God, righteous are you, O Lord. In Isaiah 45, verse 21, God says it of himself. He says, and there's no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none beside me. In John 17, verse 25, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus addresses God as, O righteous Father. Is there injustice with God perish the thought you might as well ask is there dryness in water it's the very essence of water to be wet and you should sooner talk of unwet water than you should talk of unrighteous God he is righteous by definition his nature is righteous were he not righteous he would not be God righteousness and the concept of justice come from him so when the righteous god does something that seems unrighteous to us we're confronted with a choice we can one say that's not fair god is unjust or two you can say that god doesn't do that we must reinterpret what we think the text says or three, you can confess with Scripture, Lord, you're righteous in all your ways. Even though I don't understand. Even though it's too high for me to fully comprehend, I bow before what you've revealed concerning yourself. Of course, that's the right response for a child of God. Brothers and sisters, we must seek to increasingly grow in our own confidence in God, taking Him at His word, Believing everything that he says to us about himself, even when we do not understand some of his ways. 
Have you ever read the book of Job? Or read it recently? If you've read it, if you remember it, you'll recall that Job goes through all kinds of trials and those trials cause him to question God. He's wanting answers from God and he questions even the righteousness of God. But in chapters 38 through 41, God turns the tables and begins to reorient Job's thinking by himself asking the question. It's like he puts Job up on the witness stand and he becomes the interrogator. And those questions are designed to help Job remember truth about God. That God is God. That Job is not God. That God is the creator. And that Job is his creature. One of the questions that God puts to Job to press his conscience is found in chapter 40, verse 8 of that book. The Lord says, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Job, are you going to indict me with injustice so that you might think that you're right in your own eyes? Well, the last chapter of Job's book, chapter 42, records the response of Job once he got his mind right. This is what he says. I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Brothers and sisters, never let the things that you do not understand about God keep you from laying hold of and remembering and believing the things you do understand. The things he has taught you. The things that you've grown to see and by faith you have laid hold of. Our faith will always be growing, always seeking greater clarity, more understanding. But don't be surprised when you come to those things in Scripture that are above your thoughts. It doesn't mean they're not true. It just means that they come from God who's infinite. And we're finite. And we've got little pea brains. And so it shouldn't disturb us if there are some things that we don't fully comprehend. What we must do is measure all of our thoughts about God by what He has revealed to us, what He's done for us, what He's shown us in Scripture regarding Himself, especially what He has shown us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross of Christ, we see steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. God is so righteous. He is so just that He would not spare even the Son of His love, His only beloved Son, when Jesus stepped into the place of sinners. When Jesus took our place and bore our sin before God, God in His justice executed His Son. That's what we see on the cross. Is there injustice with God? Look at the cross. And perish the thought. When you're tempted to question God's justice, go back to the cross and have your mind reoriented by that truth. But as you're remembering the cross, also let your mind be reoriented by the truth of God's love that is manifested there. 
you're trusting Jesus Christ, you ought to think about the cross and say, for me. For me. You sometimes feel like God doesn't love you. Like God has forgotten you. Like He's taken His hand off of you. Oh, brothers and sisters, go to the cross. Look at the cross. On the cross, we see the display, the measure of God's great love for sinners. When we think that God's not being good to us. God's withholding something from us. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? That's the logic of the cross that we must constantly bring back to our minds. As we trust God, we must not turn away from His way because we do not understand, but rather like Job, we must humble ourselves before Him and trust Him. This question and answer, verse 14, teach us two important lessons. First, the question validates our interpretation of verses 6-13 through 13 that we've looked at previously. Namely, that God's salvation is a salvation that comes to us by sovereign grace, including the grace of unconditional election. If you were here when we worked through those verses, perhaps you'll recall that I pointed out how some people try to interpret verses 6 through 13 in a way that downplays their starkness, that tries to somehow soften them, and they reject the interpretation that I set before us as a church, that as a church we have confessed together for years here. Such people insist that God really didn't love Jacob and hate Esau in the way that those two words might suggest. That he really didn't sovereignly choose one and not the other. Why do they argue that? Because God's just not that way. We know that. If it is true, what I've set before you, if it's true, what we've confessed together as a church, then the argument comes, the complaint comes, the objection comes, but that's not fair. That's not just which is exactly what Paul anticipates. The objection demonstrates the truthfulness of the interpretation because such an interpretation is the only one that provo would provoke such an objection. If God chooses people based on what He foresees that they're going to do, that is, if He looks down through the quarters of time and says, oh, that one's going to trust me, that one's going to trust me, I'll choose that one and that one. Well, then there's no question in our minds, about His justice, is there? Because each one gets what he or she deserves according to our way of thinking. But that's not what verses 10 through 13 say. These verses say the opposite. Before Jacob or Esau was born or had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. And He did this so that His purpose in election might continue, might stand. So that's the first lesson of verse 14. It demonstrates that God's sovereign grace and salvation, specifically in election, is true. But the second lesson of verse 14 is this. Look at the answer Paul gives. By no means. This answer reiterates the priority of God as God. God is the definition 
of justice and righteousness. So whenever we find ourselves tempted to question God's justice, we must remember that we don't even have a right concept of justice apart from God. He is the substance and the source of all righteousness because he's eternally righteous. So that's what the question and answer of verse 14 teaches. Now let's look at the proof that God is not unjust that the Apostle Paul offers in verses 15 through 18. There's two of them. As he so often does, Paul appeals to Scripture in order to support his point. In these verses, he draws from two Old Testament events to buttress his case. The first is found in verses 15 and 16, where he appeals to the incident surrounding the golden calf at Mount Sinai. Pastor Jared has read to us a section of Exodus that relates to that. They were down, the people of Israel were down at the foot of the mountain. Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments from God. And while the people are down there led by Aaron, they concoct a golden calf and say, These are your gods, O Israel, that led us out of Egypt. So Paul has that in mind. In verse 15, he's buttressing his case is making an argument with that little word for indicating that he's going to show why God is not unrighteous to sovereignly choose some and to leave others regardless of what they have done good or bad verse 15 is a quote of Exodus 33 verse 19 in that verse as we've already heard God says to Moses I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Just before that, before God said that, Moses had made a bold request of God. He said, please show me your glory. And God answers by saying in verse 19, I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name. My name, my goodness will come before you in response to your question. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Both mercy and compassion, as Paul uses them, express God's favor toward people. Now, what's most important in this verse, as Paul sets it before us, is the way that God describes the recipients of his mercy and compassion. He gives his mercy and compassion to whomsoever he wills. That's the way that the argument comes across. That's the force of these two phrases, to whom or on whom. It's whosoever he wills. So what's Paul doing here? He is showing the freeness of God's mercy and grace. God's grace is, we might say, sovereign grace. It is sovereignly dispensed. To underscore this even further, in verse 16, Paul draws three inferences from these words. So then, it depends, he says, first, not on human will, not on your will. You don't get grace because of anything that you willed, anything that you decided, anything that you've done. Secondly, not by human exertion, not by your effort. Thirdly, but rather it depends on God who has mercy. You see what is being said here? You can't achieve God's mercy. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. 
Rather, His grace, His mercy is given out of His sovereign will and pleasure. Now, how does all this prove that God is not unrighteous by sovereignly showing that saving grace to some and in showing saving grace to some and not to others. Well, here's Paul's rationale. This argument that he is making demonstrates, proves the, the truthfulness of his doctrine by declaring that God is absolutely sovereign over his creatures. His glory, which Moses asked to see, is bound up in proclaiming his name, his person, who he really is to all creation. And who is he? Well, he's Yahweh. I am that I am. The self-existent God. He is the uncreated creator. The ruler, the sustainer of all creation. He's the one who owes no one anything. The righteous God who's fully justified in treating sinners just as they deserve to be treated as breakers of his law, as rebels in his kingdom. Yet, he's pleased to show mercy and grace on some. He doesn't show saving grace and mercy to everyone. But he does show saving grace and mercy to some. You see, the wonder is not that God left Ishmael in his sin. The wonder is that he chose Isaac by his grace. The wonder is not that God hated Esau. The wonder is that God would love Jacob. Brothers and sisters, if we do not see this, we will not be amazed by grace. But if you do see this, you'll be stunned into thinking that God has begraced you. That God has loved us. Why? Because He's a God of mercy and grace. And it has pleased Him to do so. We deserve the opposite. We deserve judgment. We deserve God's wrath. But God shows us grace in Christ. If you're in Jesus today, if you're trusting the Lord Jesus, this truth ought to just flood your thinking and affect your emotions in a way that you cannot help but praise Him. You cannot help but desire to live wholeheartedly for Him. Because you are sitting here this morning as a Christian because God made you a Christian. You're here this morning worshiping God because He determined to show His name, to show His power in you by turning you from the path you were on straight to hell and making you one of His own children. And He did it not because of anything in you. He did it to manifest His great grace. Brothers and sisters, if we understand this, we have no reason to look down our noses at anybody. <laughs> we have no reason to be arrogant. I mean, what do we have that we haven't been given? Nothing. All that we are, all that we have, is by God's grace in our lives. I know that there's some of you here this morning and you're not trusting Christ, but I, I hope that you will understand this in the right way. Because this is really good news for you. This is good news for you. Because you might have been trying to think your way into a right relationship with God. I don't know enough yet. And if I just knew a little bit more, 
Look, it's not your understanding or your knowledge that makes you right with God. It's his grace. I'm just not good enough. I got a few things I got to clean up in my life. And once I get these sorted out, you know, then I really do want to be devoted to God. You can never be good enough for God. You have nothing to offer God. Why are you waiting? Why are you hesitating? Why are you thinking that that if only you could accomplish this or do this or learn this, then you'd be ready? No, salvation comes by grace. You need grace. Do you know yourself to be a sinner? Do you know that you don't deserve God's favor? Do you know that you've broken his commandments? Well, good news. Those are the only kind of people that God shows grace to. And if you're agreeing with God about yourself as a sinner, then go to him. Plead with him. Bow to him. Look to him. Argue with him based upon what he himself has said about how he delights to show mercy. Brings him pleasure to show mercy to people like you and me. And argue the basis of his son's death on the cross for sinners. You don't have anything to offer him. But Jesus has done everything necessary to make people like you and me right with God. And trust Christ. You might say, well, what if I'm not one of the elect? If you're not one of the elect and you trust Jesus Christ, God's going to save you. Because that's impossible. If you trust Jesus Christ, you're demonstrating that he has loved you first. Why? Because we love him. Because he first loved us. So trust the Lord Jesus. Go to this God of grace and submit yourself to him and look to Christ whom he has provided for sinners like you and me and be reconciled to him. Well, the second Old Testament event that Paul appeals to is recorded in verses 17 and 18 of our text. And it comes from God's dealing with Pharaoh during the exodus, during the leading his people out of Egypt into freedom. In verse 17, Paul says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, and I just want to stop there for a moment because there's an important lesson to be gained here that's not really germane to the argument of this message. But the lesson is this. Paul attributes words of God, words that God spoke to Pharaoh through his mouthpiece, Moses, who was using Aaron as his mouthpiece. Those were words from God to Pharaoh. And Paul says, the scripture says. Now, when Moses was standing before Pharaoh, there had not been any written scripture. And so we get an interesting little insight here, don't we? What scripture says, God says. What God says, Scripture says. Don't let anybody ever trick you into thinking that, well, you know, those are just Paul's words. That's just Moses' words. Or we're just concerned with Jesus' words. That's where we really get our teaching from. No. The Word of God is inscripturated. We see it really clearly. Just incidentally, the way that Paul introduces his argument. So in verses, these Verses 17 and 18, what he does in verse 17 is what he did in one part with verse 7 in verse 15. He introduces it with the word for. That is, he's making another argument to show why God is not unrighteous and sovereignly dispensing his saving grace. So let me read verse 17. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God created and elevated Pharaoh for his own glory. God created Pharaoh in order to show his power in Pharaoh. God made Pharaoh king of Egypt in order to spread God's fame throughout the whole earth. And both of those things happened. God's power was shown in Pharaoh's life and God's fame was spread through all the earth in Pharaoh's life. I mean, we're still talking about Pharaoh today, right? Why? Because he was such a great guy? No, because God demonstrated something about God in his life. The verse that Paul quotes, Exodus 9.16, comes right after the sixth of the ten plagues that God sent to Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go free from their slavery. That was the plague of boils that came upon animals, animals and people. If you know the story of the plagues, you'll remember that Pharaoh went from being completely arrogant and dismissive of God to being humbled to the point where he was broken and destroyed by God. When Moses first carried God's word to Pharaoh, Pharaoh scoffed. Exodus 5.2 puts it like this. He said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? But after the tenth plague, when Pharaoh is mourning the death of his son, he commands the Israelites to leave in the name of this Lord. And then, Exodus tells us that later he, he came to his senses and he changed his mind and he decided to chase after the Israelites and to recapture them and to re-enslave them. So God destroyed him and his army in the Red Sea. From that time to this very day, God's name has been proclaimed throughout the earth because of what happened to Pharaoh. What's Paul's point? His point is that as the creator and sovereign of the world, God does what he does with every person in the world, even great rulers, to manifest his glory. Now this is, again, it's a, it's a fundamental truth. It's an important truth. so important we teach our children this as their ABCs of theological understanding. And so there are a lot of children here this morning, and some of you know your catechism, right, kids? So if I were to ask you, who made you, what would you say? God made me. What else did God make? All things. And why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. There you have it. They know more theology than a lot of preachers. And it's important theology. It's fundamental theology. Everything that exists, exists for the glory of God. He created it. He created it by himself, for himself, to make a name for himself in his creation. Birds exist for the glory of God. Mountains exist for the glory of God. Valleys exist for the glory of God. Water exists for the glory of God. Air exists for the glory of God. Frogs exist for the glory of God. Giraffes exist for the glory of God. People exist for the glory of God. Everything in this world has been created by God for God to manifest his own glory. That's true, not just for Pharaoh. 
It's true for you and me. Your life, with all of the twists and turns in it, with all of the blessings and trials in it, your life has been given to you by God for His glory. So that the world can see the kind of God that He is. The 16th century reformer John Calvin said it like this, creation is the theater of God's glory. Do you believe this? Have you embraced this? If so, then are you actively seeking God's glory? Are you consciously living in a way with the choices that are in front of you so that you can take a choice with an intentionality of glorifying God more by doing this than if you did that? Again, our children's catechism goes on to explain how we can glorify God. So kids, you ready? How can we glorify God? By loving Him and doing what He commands. That's right. Why ought you to glorify God? Because He made me and takes care of me. Amen. Amen. That's the truth. That's the fundamental truth that not just our children, but each one of us need to bring back to our thinking time and time again. Do you love God? Are you doing what He commands? Do you find sometimes that His commandments seem to lead you on a path that feels like it will be contrary to what's in your best interests? Whenever you find yourself set up like that, you can be sure of this, that something has happened in your thinking and you're not thinking rightly. Because God has determined that what glorifies Him will be good for His people. What is best for you will most glorify Him. If you're not seeking to obey the commandments of God, then you're rebelling against your Creator and you must stop this very moment and trust the Lord Jesus. Because the first thing that God commands all of His image bearers to do is to have no other God beside him. And you cannot have God as God without turning from your sin and trusting Jesus Christ. So again, if you've never trusted Christ, trust him now. Believe him now. Take God at his word. He will save you. He delights in showing mercy to sinners. And it's not because of anything in you. It's because he is a God of great grace and mercy. There are two inferences from verse 17 that Paul gives us in verse 18. He writes in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. The first of these inferences is simply a repeat of verse 15. He has mercy on whomever he wills. But the second one adds another dimension, a stark dimension. He hardens whomever he wills. Eighteen times in the story of Moses' confrontation of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, we read about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Several of those times it just says, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But many of those times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. A couple of those times it says that 
Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And I believe that's just to teach us that God's sovereignty and how he deals with people doesn't cancel out our responsibility. God was sovereign over Pharaoh, but Pharaoh was responsible before God. And Pharaoh had an obligation not to harden his heart before God, just as you and I do. We're responsible to respond to what God has taught us about himself. Paul here is emphasizing God's sovereignty. He's the creator. He has the right to harden or to show mercy. He'll elaborate this in verses that are following in chapter 9. And God can do either one, both harden or show mercy with complete justice. Because he's God. So is God God? Yes. Is God unjust? Perish the thought. He cannot be unjust. Injustice occurs only when that which a person is owed is not provided. If the, the wages for which you've agreed to work are withheld from you when you've completed the work, then you are being treated unjustly. But is a bank robber treated unjustly if he is arrested and goes to trial and stands before a judge and found guilty and then consigned to a prison? Is that injustice? It's not. Well, what about if a bank robber robs a bank and is arrested and goes and stands before a judge and a judge shows him mercy, acquits him, pardons him, and he goes free? Is that now injustice to the first bank robber? No. He's still getting exactly what he deserved. Mercy and grace has been shown to the second one, and it in no way impinges upon the justice shown to the first one. This, again, is what makes God's grace so amazing. Everybody that Paul mentions in these first 18 verses of Romans 9, every one of them is guilty before God. They're all sinners. They're all like bank robbers and deserve nothing but God's eternal wrath against their sin. And yet Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Moses received mercy from God, not because they deserved it, but because God in his sovereign grace bestowed it. Esau and Pharaoh did not receive mercy from God. Were they treated unjustly? No. No. They got justice. The same principle is operating today. If you refuse to turn from your sin and continue to live in rebellion to God all your life, you will justly perish eternally under his wrath. And that's what every one of us in this room deserves. But the good news is God has mercy towards sinners. He delights to show mercy upon those who deserve the opposite. And his mercy and his grace are found in Jesus Christ. Christ who shed his blood to redeem sinners like us. So trust Christ. Believe Christ. Be reconciled to Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us never let our minds drift into a way of thinking that somehow we are right with God because of something that we've done. Let us never look down upon those who chase after this world's idols and think, well, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm not that stupid. But recognize I'd be just like them if it weren't for God's grace in my life. And let's magnify this grace to one another. Let's remind each other that God has graced us and that as God's begraced people, we are stewards of that grace. And let's go and declare this grace to the nations. 
Let's tell the people we see tomorrow morning on the job site that there's a God in heaven who loves to show grace and mercy to sinners like them because he's done it to sinners like us. And as they turn from sin and trust Christ, they will experience his great grace in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are amazed. We can't comprehend it. It beggars our imagination to try to wrap our minds around the depth of your love and grace for sinners. But we want to believe everything your word says. And as your people, as those who have tasted and seen that you're good, oh God, we want to be stunned by your grace. We want to sing amazing grace that saved a wretch like me and mean it. We want to declare to the whole world, that there is salvation available for the worst of people, for what we might think to be the most hopeless of people because it doesn't depend upon us. I pray that you'd pour your grace out upon this congregation, upon each one of us gathered here this morning. Reveal Christ. Strengthen your people in grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.